If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're actually going to uh, look at the first parable there in chapter 25, but we're going to do a little bit of uh, background work in uh, Matthew chapter 24. You know, we've been studying our parables, and um, tonight we're going to come to um, this parable in Matthew chapter 25 of the uh, parable of the wise and foolish uh, virgins, and uh, then as well on Sunday mornings, you know, I've been going through First John, so I got three more messages in First John, and I'm going to be going to Jonah. So if you want to read ahead, you can read ahead in Jonah, and uh, I'll be there probably six weeks, and then I'll be uh, in fall doing a series on the family and marriage and kids and, and all the such. So be praying for me as I prepare those things and praying uh, that God uh, uses His Word to uh, sharpen us. And also on Wednesday nights, I got two more parables to do, and then I'll be moving on from the parables on Wednesday night um, as well. So we are coming down to the last couple parables here. And so this parable um, is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we talk a lot about the first coming. Most people can agree on the first coming of Jesus Christ. There's not a whole lot of dispute or there's not a whole lot of argument about the first coming of Jesus Christ. But the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is a lot. Um, partly because there is a lot of mystery to it. There is a lot of symbolism to it. And there's a lot of literal things to it. And it does take some interpretation. And also, um, it comes right down to it that we really don't know exactly how it's going to happen. Some things are literal. Some things are prophecy. Some things are uh, figurative or symbolic. And so we can do the best we can to interpret these things. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus pulls his disciples aside. It's not to the group. It's not to the majority of the, uh, of the people. It's to the disciples and he begins in chapter 24, and what he says is quite stirring. Um, if you've ever done a series or a studies on chapter 24, it's really remarkable. Um, I'll hit some of the highlights. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, and all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So, some interesting things there, right? Nation against nation, uh, kingdom against kingdom, many deceivers, many of those coming saying, I am the Christ, and deceiving not a few, but how many? A many, right? Like, this is going to be widespread delusion, like widespread understanding of who uh, Christ is and what he is not. Uh, they're going to have trouble deciphering the message of Christ and deciphering who Christ uh, really is. And so, he says, be warned. He's warning them. He's saying, take heed, be on guard. And it kind of goes along really well with 1 John uh, as we've been studying through 1 John because 1 John says the same thing. Do not be deceived. There are many antichrists already at work in the world. Why? Do not be deceived. Do not be pulled away from the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. And even today, um, we look to what is being taught. We look to what we see. And most of what we believe or most of Western Christianity is built on how we feel, not what the Bible says. If, it, if you feel a certain way, then it must be truth, regardless of what the Word says. 
But we know that's not true. God's word is true. Everything else is false. Like I said uh, Sunday, there, there are not gray areas in the Bible that's black and white. There's a lot of gray areas in us. There's a lot of gray areas in sinners. But there's not a gray area in God's word. It is truth. And uh, whether we believe it or not, it's still truth. It's still going to come to pass. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here, in Matthew 24, he's saying, look, get ready for these things. These things will come to pass, and these things are going to be you know, a time of tumultuous times. Verse 9, he says, they'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated for, uh, by all nations for my name's sake. Then they will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold. Now, I want to put a little asterisk right there. So he says, because of this lawlessness that's going to abound in the world, the love of many will grow cold. Uh, It will grow cold in its passion and desire for God's word and God's truth. He's playing out telling us this is what's going to be like in these end times. In verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved and the gospel and this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. So he's saying, here's all these things, and you're not there yet, but you can see it from here. And once all these things take place, then the end will come. Then then the end will come. And he begins to describe the great tribulation. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let whom is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let whom is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as never been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, for, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So it's something that Jesus is describing about the tribulation and also the great tribulation. He's saying, here's what's going to come. And when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of in the Old Testament, then you better be ready and you better be prepared because it's about to happen. The great tribulation is going to be poured out on the face of the earth. And then he says, if anyone says, look, here is a Christ or there, do not believe it. False prophets will show great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect, see, I've told you beforehand. He said, I've warned you about this. I'm telling you this. I'm preparing you and I'm preparing the church for this. And therefore, if you say, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Look, he's there in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east to the west and flashes to the west, so will the, com- the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, the, there, ain't, there, there the eagles will be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Say, wow, 
man, Pastor Ted, that's, uh, that's when, is, when is exactly the end? When does Jesus come back? If Jesus has given us all these clues, then we should be able to pin it down. But let me tell you, when people start making frantic prophecies and setting dates, mark it down, they're a few fries short of a Happy Meal, all right? Because when I was growing up, there was a pastor out in California, and he wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Was Coming Back in 1988. And a very famous guy, had a great radio station for years and years and years, and of course, Jesus didn't come back, so he wrote a second book, and guess what it was called? 89 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Come Back in 1989. So he tried, but obviously he did not know. And Jesus clearly tells us in verse 36, No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. So uh, the point that I'm trying to get to as we get to this uh, scripture, we get to this uh, parable, is not so much the details of all that's going to happen in end days, but be ready for what, what God is calling us to do. What is Jesus calling us to do? And he gives a little hint in verse 42. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. And then drop down to verse 44. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So he runs through this litany and stuff, and I'm sure their minds were scrambled. All right? Their minds were boggled. And let me tell you, if you take chapter 24, it would take you a lifetime to try to unpack every part of this scripture. And we know that God is in control of those things. And it's a very interesting study. But that's not what I want to share tonight. What I want to share tonight is what Jesus was getting to his disciples in Matthew chapter 25. And we have started these parables. And it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So these people would have related to this story very, very well. It's kind of hard for us to relate to this because of the way that our marriage system is and the way that our wedding system is. But these disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was likening this coming of Christ to. And so uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, this is the parable. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So in our culture, we wait for the bride, right? And uh, as we wait for the bride, uh, we know that the groom stands at the front and he looks to the back and then the bride comes down the aisle and she takes uh, full, uh, full control of the show, right? Full control of the ceremony. And I can remember when uh, Aaron and I got married 21 years ago, I can remember the, uh, they had a little VHS camera. They didn't have any MP3s or, you know, there was a VHS camera. So they came by and they said, what was the most memorable thing about the moment? And I said, about the marriage. I said, when the doors opened up and I saw Aaron for the first time in her wedding dress coming down the aisle, then they went to her. And I was sort of a little bit let down because they said, what was the most memorable thing you remember about the wedding? She said, I told him to wipe the sweat off his forehead and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> I said, wow. Of course, our wedding was almost two hours long, by the way, because it was a pastor who was her first cousin. And he went from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I mean, it was his first wedding he ever did, and it was in Hilliard, Florida, at an independent Baptist church. And man, he covered everything you could imagine it would be covered. And two hours later, we made it through, and we were married. And it's, I guess he tied to not really well because it hasn't come undone yet. So uh, anyways, he, as you think of this story here, it's exact opposite. The bridegroom was the one that was, would take a trip 
as they prepared the bride, and as the bridegroom would come, they would have these uh, wise uh, or these virgins come along, or these very young uh, girls come along, and they would bring them in like an entourage. And it was their job to make the the wedding spectacular. It was their job to. It was it was a very very um, prized thing to be a part of that. It was something that uh, they would look forward to doing. They wanted to do. Um, it was something they wanted to do for the families. It was something they wanted to do for the bride. It was something they wanted to do for the bridegroom. And so they were very very um, excited when they got asked to participate in these weddings. And if you didn't have a lot of the pump and you didn't have a lot of the, you know, the show part of it or you wasn't very interested in it and made it very interesting, then it was kind of a letdown for the family. So these uh, young girls were to really be excited and kind of bring the bridegroom up and really start off the, the meeting between the bridegroom and the bride. But verse 5 says, when the bridegroom, uh, I mean, verse uh, two says, now five of them were wise and five were foolish. So there was 10 of them. And he tells us from the very start, there was five that were wise and five who were foolish. The word foolish here is the root word ignoramus. I don't think I need to tell you what that means, um, but it's ignoramus. So he was saying they are completely out of touch. So five were wise took it seriously. Five were kind of head in the clouds, not really paying attention, kind of just going through the motions. So verse three comes, it says, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamp. So Apparently, these lamps had a lamp that was decorative, and below it, there would be an oil basin, and the wick would come up through the lamp, and you would fill the oil in the basin, and it would burn the light, which is very precious in those times, especially if the bridegroom came at night, because they needed light. They needed light to see the bridegroom. They needed light to see the bride. They needed light to um, start the celebration. They needed light to start... Um, you know, honoring the bridegroom and the, and the bride. And so five, he said, um, were wise. Five were foolish. Um, the foolish ones took no oil with them, meaning that they grabbed their lamp with the wick, but they did not take any oil. And others were wise. They took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So they had the lamp and they had the oil and they had extra oil um, because sometimes the bridegroom would be delayed. It was never announced the specific time the bridegroom will come. And so that was part of the spontaneous um, type of wedding, the spontaneous type of celebration. And it was uh, to come at a time when they would least expect it. And the pump and the, and, the, and the progress and everyone would be so excited because all of a sudden the bridegroom showed up and they would light the lamps and they would escort him in. And so five uh, had oil, five did not. But verse five says, but when the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, which wouldn't be very normal, uh, which, be, which would be very normal, I'm sorry, because they would be sitting there sometimes for days and at night, um, sometimes, you know, you get the right time, you start to fall asleep. 
uh, much like people do when people preach, right? And all of a sudden, the, the time is right, and all of a sudden, you go out like a light, and all of a sudden, you realize you're, you're out, and you don't even realize it. Um, my kids said I have a great spiritual gift of being able to watch TV and sleep at the same time, because they can hear me snore, but if they grab the remote, I'm like, I was watching that. They're like, there's no way you could watch that, because you were snoring, but uh, here they were, they were slumbering, and they slept, so they were waiting, and the bridegroom was delayed. Obviously, they had thought maybe he would be there by now, but somehow, some way, it got delayed. So um, whether the bride wasn't ready, whether the families wasn't ready, it doesn't tell us. It just says that the bridegroom was delayed. Then verse 6, and at midnight cry, and at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. So here was their time to shine. They, they heard the call. The, the, it was announced clear as day. Um, the, at, right at the midnight hour, they heard this cry and they heard this uh, command. Get up and go out and meet him and usher him in to the celebration of the marriage. And so uh, verse 7 says, Then all of the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So remember, all of them had some sort of uh, a wick that probably had oil um, soaked up in it. But yet, after a certain period of time, the oil would dissipate and you had to have extra oil. But all of them trimmed the lamps just like they were supposed to. So they had lamps that looked like they worked. They had lamps that had wicks. They had lamps that probably would have seemed like it was something that really um, would have worked. But verse 8 says, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. So here they were, the moment that they had been waiting for, and the moment they were preparing for, all of a sudden they start running out of oil. And their light begins to dim, and their light eventually does what? It goes out. They no longer have the light. They no longer have the ability to usher in the bridegroom. So as embarrassing as it was, and as disgraceful as it was, that the family would shun or be mad, or even the bridegroom would be upset, and the bride, they had really let the family down. So they said, hey, give us some of your oil. Like, our lamps are out, and we want you to give us some of your oil. Look at verse 9. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him uh, to the wedding, and the door was shut. So here they were in the midst of the time for ready for them to go. They asked him, Can we have the oil? And they said, No. And the reason why they said no was because there's not enough for you and us. That this oil that we have prepared and we have brought is only good for us. It was only good for us to be able to usher in the bridegroom the proper way. You did not have the oil. If I give you our oil, then we won't have enough to be able to make it down the path to get him to the bride and to the family and to the ceremony. And so they said, maybe you have time to go and buy it for yourselves. So obviously unprepared, obviously not with the oil they needed, obviously slumbering in sleep and being uh, 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 as well um, not prepared, they decided to go. And when they go, and then they went to buy the oil, the bridegroom continued down the path and entered to where the bride was and the family. 
And he said, those who were ready went with him. And the verse 10 says at the end of it, and the door was shut. Now, when you think about Jesus, when he teaches his parables and you teach and you hear what he teaches, um, he never minces words. You know, there's never a time where you never know which side of the aisle Jesus comes down on. And he says, here was these parables of this two, uh, five virgins that had left and went on. They didn't ready to come. And they said they, they, they came back and ready to go into the wedding. But the door was shut. It was shut. And and, uh, verse 11 says, Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. So not only would he not open the door, but then he says, I don't even know you. Like, assuredly, as sure as I am here, I do not know you. Then verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So we could get wrapped up in a lot of details, right? What was the oil? What was the, who was the bride? Obviously we know um, who, who the bridegroom was. And we also know um, part of those about the lamps. And yet the main point, as we've said from the beginning, parables normally have one major point. And the main point of the parable is verse 13. He commands them and he tells them of the wise and the foolish. He says, you disciples, watch therefore. You watch therefore and you will not be able, you will not be able to get ready. You have to be ready, right? You don't know the hour nor the time. And if you're not prepared and you're not spiritually right with God and you're not following after the Lord Jesus Christ and you didn't have uh, the preparation of a relationship with him, then when the door is shut, there's no door number two. There's no second chance. There's no, wait a minute, let's go back and try this again. And you think about it. Uh, the Bible clearly tells us that many times, right? He says, uh, for it's once appointed a man to die and then the judgment. We don't get two judgment. We get one judgment. We stand before the Lord. And once our life is, is in his hands, we are judged. And it, it is just as sure as anything. We can't go back and try it again. We can't say, time out, hold up. I, I now see the light, and I'm doing it. And doesn't this remind you of a story in the Old Testament? Um, the story of Noah and the ark. Um, you remember Noah and the ark, and Noah was telling the people, the rain is coming, the rain is coming. What they say? He's a foolish old man. It's never even rained before. And he has built this ark, and he is completely whacked out of his mind. And he is out there on that ark, and he's telling people they need to repent. And he's telling people that they need to come to the Lord, but yet he, it's never rained a single drop. And it hadn't up until the first raindrop. And all of a sudden, the first raindrop fell. And I'm sure that there were many who thought, uh-oh, the first raindrop, what was that? And it continued to rain and continued to rain and continued to rain. Good news. This is not Noah and the flood out here. All right. It may have rained a lot today, but God promised he'll never flood the earth like that again. So this is not Noah's flood. So we, we can have confidence in that. But uh, the principle is the same. When Noah put his family on the ark, it says that he sealed that gate shut um, to the ark. And guess how many people got on the ark afterwards? None. The gate was shut. The ark was sealed. And, you know, for us as Christians, when we look to this, and for those who are not Christians, when they look to this, this is very important for us to remember remember this. And I know some of you probably have read books 
there was a famous line of books um, that was taught by some preachers, and there was a, a fictional line of books that were supposedly went along with Revelation. And in that story, a pilot who was not living for the Lord or really didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ had got left behind. And uh, all of a sudden, he was left behind. And later on, he got the second bus, right? He ended up being able to make it to heaven. Well, when you read Scripture, you don't find that in the Bible. When God's judgment comes, it's permanent. It is final. God's judgment may render slowly, but it renders faithfully. And when it's done, it's done. You don't get to go back. You don't get time time out. You don't get to try again. And that's why it's important for us as Christians to be ready in this age of grace. And I say this all the time. As Christians, we're living in the greatest time we could ever be alive. We are living in the age of grace. We are living in the age where we could call upon the name of Jesus Christ, and we could be saved, and we could trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we live that life, life out, we have this amazing grace that saves us. And as we come to Jesus Christ, we can live our life that's pleasing to Him. And not that we do everything perfect, but yet we are pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ and we're ready. He tells them to watch. That word watch there doesn't mean just to sit there and look down the road or look up in the sky. It's an active word. It's a word that means watching, waiting, and serving. We are to work. We are to serve. We are to be ready. And when Jesus comes, He says, you better be ready because no one knows the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. And the point is, as I said, you're not going to be able to get ready. You have to be ready. You got to be ready. And uh, I read a book uh, when I was in college, and the author asked one question, and it was very stirring to me as a college student, uh, and it's very stirring even to this day. He said, you need to ask yourself one very important question. Is there something that you do or continually do that you would be ashamed of if Jesus Christ returned? And when you think about your life, and you think about the way we live our life, and we think about what we value... Because when we look to this world and the culture, what does it value? And we talked a little bit about this last week with the the parable of the rich guy who said he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns. And he was going to get more stuff and more stuff. It's very worldly. It's very uh, all about possessions. But Jesus says for us, we are not to focus on those things. We are to focus on eternal things. We are to focus on things of heaven. And if we're doing stuff that pulls us away in the world, if we go along the way of the world with our possessions, with our time, even with the evilness that's in our world. I mean, we live in a culture that calls wrong right and calls right wrong. I mean, if I had to describe it from a story in the Bible, I think it would come straight out of Judges. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes, right? I mean, we have no standard. We have no righteous standard. It has been moved away. And yet, as Christians, if we were to look to God's Word and we were to study God's Word, and would there be something that we are ashamed of if Jesus returned at any moment? And for us to live a life like that, to watch, to wait, to serve, and listen, like I said, you don't, you don't have to be perfect. Noah was not a perfect man. It says that Noah was a blameless man. Do you know what the difference between a blameless man and a perfect man? A blameless man is that no one could bring a, a living or current accusation against him. He lived his life that if he did something wrong or that he wronged someone, he went and made it right. That he was blameless in the sight of the people that he lived in, and he was blameless in the sight of God because he had pursued God, and even though he might do something wrong, he was right. And listen, for us as Christians, one of my favorite verses, 1 John 1, 9, 
If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to wash us from all unrighteousness. And for us as Christians, when we walk and we live through this world, that's the way we should live every single day. Dr. Lindsay from First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, he used to say, you need to keep short accounts with God. Listen, if you're mad and upset and bitter towards someone, you better get it right because the next day it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And as we walk away from God and send roots in our heart, it pulls us away and we ought to be ready to repent. We ought to be ready to confess our sins. This word confess in 1 John means to agree with God. That we are to come to God and say, yes, I should not have treated my wife that way. And it is a sin. <laughs> and I told this before, but when we first got married, and, you know, I, Aaron was the first girl I ever dated. She was the first girl that I ever um, got to know uh, closely because I didn't grow up with just a brother. I didn't grow up with any sisters. And so when we'd have an argument, I thought, okay, well, she knows I'm wrong, and I know I'm wrong, so everything is good, Right. No, not good. <laughs> All right? when, when you confess something, you go to that person and you say, I know it was wrong. And you need to verbalize that to them. You need to express that to them and say, I'm agreeing with you that I treated you wrong. And that's the same thing John is saying here. We should confess it and, and not to a priest and not to another person, but to who? To God. That we are to go to God every day, and every day we get ready to go to bed, or every morning we wake up, we should confess our sins. And what does the scripture say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to watch us, wash us from all unrighteousness. So the goal is not perfection. The goal is direction. We are living a life that's pleasing to God, and when we have sin in our life and we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we should be ready by confessing and repenting and turning from our ways. And the repent part has become the world's dirty word. I will dare you to say, to read or to hear the messages from the top pastors throughout Western Christianity, and one word you will not hear very much of is repent. They will not tell you sin is sin. They will not tell you need to repent. They will not tell you need to turn from your ways, but the Bible's full of it. Matter of fact, Jesus' first words, he proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he told them. Repent to turn from your ways. And for us, we are to turn. And as we turn, He forgives. He washes our sins away. And, uh, you know, for my boys, when they were growing up, you know, they would go out in the yard and they would play and they would get dirty. And Aaron loved to give them a bath. Like she loved to get in there and clean all behind their ears and clean all behind their arms and get them all cleaned up. When they come out, she'd put those, those little uh, soft little uh, pajamas on them and they would come out. And man, they were so clean and so fluffy and so soft. He's like, man, how clean and how prepared and how, how dirty they were. But now look how clean and pristine they are. That's what we do when we go to God. We go to God and we, 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 we confess our sins and He cleans us up and He washes us up and He puts us back on uh, our clothes of righteousness and He takes off our unrighteousness and we are, we are to live a life pleasing to God every single day. That's the challenge we should have as Christians for you and for me. So question for you. Is there something that you are pursuing or something in your life that if you know if you continue to do that, you would be ashamed if Jesus would return? It's important for us to ask that. It's important for the disciples to ask that. You don't want to be like a foolish uh, one waiting for God. You want to be a wise uh, uh, servant. So not only that, 
uh, verse 2, not only should we be clean, but we should be fired up. We should, be, we should have passion. In Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to the church at Laodicea, the last church in the church age, he tells them, he says, I know your works. Like, you're not hiding anything from me. Like, I know your works. And, and you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know what he's saying here? You can't be passive. You can't be middle of the road. Jesus said to his disciples, and he said it many times, he said, you're either for me or you're against me. He said, you're either on my side of the fence or you're on the other side of the fence. You're either an enemy of God or you're a friend of God. And for us as Christians who think we could be lukewarm, Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth. I will vomit you out of my mouth. I, I don't want anything to do with you. Why? Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So there we are with our little lamp and our little wick, and we don't have any oil, but boy, does it look pretty. And we stand there and we say, God, here I am. I am ready, but I have the lamp and I have the wick and I'm ready and I have need of nothing. But then when Jesus returns, guess what? You feel, you realize that you were short. Just like he says here to these uh, people at Laodicea, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Man, what a, what a stark difference. As, as Christians, not just what's on the outside, not saying you're rich and wealthy and all the things that we have, but he says, you don't even know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he tells them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and that you, your, and your white garments that you may be clothed, that you shame, that shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Man, for us as Christians, and that our, that should be our prayer. Lord, wake me up. Lord, don't let me be lukewarm. Don't let me be a passive father. Don't let me be a passive Christian. Don't let me just lull myself to sleep in the world and not do the things of God. And he even tells me in verse 90, he says, I love you and I rebuke you. And I, in 19 in verse uh, of Revelation 3, therefore be zealous and repent. Same word. He says, be zealous and repent. And those who I love, I rebuke and chasten. When I was going to church at a large church, they had a nursery, and there was probably 100 kids in there. And every time I would go up to the door to pick up Tucker, they would all go, Daddy, 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 Daddy. I was like, whoa, <laughs> no, those are not all my kids. I got, I got one kid in there, and, and no matter how they act, I, I didn't care how they acted. I just cared about how my kid acted. And if my kid was acting up and I was his father, guess what? I would discipline him. And they would tell me, hey, your child did this. And by the way, Tucker, who's my oldest son, he got the most demerits in preschool of any kid we've ever had. <laughs> I mean, we went there and the lady would tell him, says, I don't know what you're going to do with this kid. I don't know what's going to happen to him. He's probably going to be in prison by the time he's 12 years old. And so he, she was just, he was always doing something just mischievous, um, doing things. And so uh, I would discipline him. I rebuke him. You know why? Because he was my child. I, I wanted him to do well, so I rebuke him. That's what Jesus says in our life. We should allow God to rebuke us and to chasten us. How do we know we're wrong? We get convicted. I tell people this all the time when they come talk to me about their walk with God. And they say, man, I just feel guilty. I, I feel shame. I feel this. I feel that. I says, you know what? Maybe you need to really look at that. That might be a good thing. Listen, if you have conviction over doing something wrong, that's a sign of something's right in your life. 
If you can sin and keep on sinning and never have any, and never have any conviction and you never have any um, chastening in your life, that tells you you might not be a child of God. And obviously, these, uh, uh, these uh, five foolish uh, ones here were not a children, was not a child of God. That, that they looked the part and they had the part, but yet he didn't, there wasn't rebuke, there wasn't chasing, and they thought they could have another way. And yet he tells them, you be ready, you be prepared, and you have a fire lit in you to not be lukewarm. And when was the last time you really got passionate about reading God's Word? When was the last time you got fired up about telling somebody about Jesus? When was the last time you got fired up of hearing a, a sermon and going out and telling others about God's Word? When's the last time you heard a song that brought you to your knees and tears to you in your eyes? Man, when we walk with God, those things should be so close to us in our heart and our life. And that's the way we know that we're saved and we know that we're prepared. And at any moment, we can be ready because we're fired up and we're zealous and we're ready for Jesus Christ to come back at any moment. And verse, I mean, number three uh, principle in this is just to watch and pray. This parable pushes us to keep watch. And in Matthew 26, 41, it says it again, watch and pray so that you're not falling into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak or the flesh is weak. And for us, we need, must push through the flesh. We must push through the world and we must push through those things because the spirit needs to control our life. And we not, must not follow the way of the world and fall asleep, but we need to watch and we need to pray. We need to be prepared. And for us as Christians, I would have to say over and over again, as you hear these words, one other time Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks at the end of, the, um, at, at the end of a sermon on the mount. He tells them, he says, here um, you come to me and you say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not served you? Have we not done all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that's the, that's the reality of it. That's what should check our minds. That's what should check our hearts. And to look as Christians to see if we really are saved or we're not saved. And I was gonna, I'm going to close with this. One of my uh, favorite preachers uh, came to pastor's conference one time. His name was uh, Bobby Welch. And he was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Daytona. And he was in the military. And when he was young, he was on fire for the Lord. He got saved when he was uh, 10 or 11 years old. And man, he was on fire for the Lord. He was sharing the gospel. He went through um, high school and still was on fire for the Lord. And so he decided um, he started to um, go against his family a little bit, against his dad. And he said he really didn't like his dad telling him, you know, what to do and what not to do. And his mom telling him what to do and what not to do. So he decided to join the Marines. <laughs> Not the smartest thing to do, right? <laughs> and so he went into the Marines, and while he was in the Marines, he continued to walk away from God. And he said that he knew better, but yet he didn't pray. He didn't read his Bible. He didn't stay uh, close to God. And he said, you know what? I know I'm saved, so if I die, and I die there, I, I know I got Christ in my life. I know that um, I'll be fine. You know, he never considered it much. He, he partied. He hung out with all the guys. He did a lot of uh, things that wasn't right. And he said one day he was on patrol and he was walking through uh, a path and he stepped on a, a landmine. And when he stepped on the landmine, it came up and it hit him and it blew out part of his rib cage and part of his chest and part of, I mean, the whole right side of his body was almost blown out. And he said he remembers hitting the ground and he said he was sitting there um, 
bleeding to death. And they were calling for medics and they were calling for trying to get him a flight out of there. And he said he remembers uh, waiting there and his partner being there with him. And he said he looked up and he said all of a sudden, just as clear as day, uh, Jesus was walking towards him. And he said when he saw Jesus, he said the worst amount of shame that's ever been in his life came over him. He said, oh God, not that he wasn't saved, but yet that he was ashamed of the way that he was living. That he knew that he was not right with God, and he knew that God, uh, that he had ran from God, and he was not living for the Lord. And he said he didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say to him at that moment. And he said, Lord, if you get me out of here, he said, I will serve you the rest of my life. And of course, they got him out. They saved his life. And when he got out, he got out of the Marines and became a preacher. And so he started preaching and uh, he began to preach uh, that sermon and that testimony all over the world and to military people and all the, all the things. He saw thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ. And, and it just was a stark reminder for me that just to think about your life, that if you were to see Jesus tonight, would you be ashamed? Would you be one where you said, give me some of your oil because I wasn't prepared. I didn't have a real relationship with God. Yet for us, we need to be prepared and we better be ready because we don't have time to get ready. So let's, uh, let's pray together.